I'm so uh, happy to speak with you this morning. Michael Hartney, we've spoken before. You are a, currently a fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University in Palo Alto, Cal- California, which sounds very exciting. Um, but, you know, I really want to talk about your uh, your new book, and I want to get this right, on how policies make interest groups, because, you know, it seems like right now we're going through these upheavals in public education. And there has seemed to emerge to me, and you know um, so much more about this than I do, this sort of dichotomy of parents versus teachers unions, not necessarily parents versus teachers, but teachers unions want the power. Parents have started to get some power during the pandemic. And now it seems like in a lot of places like Arizona, we have these battles between these two groups. And, um, and I think too, just like a lot of people figure teachers unions have always been around. This is how schools have always been run. And they're just continuing the way the great American tradition of teachers unions and their leadership running schools, which is not exactly the case. So explain to me, like, how did we get to this point where teachers unions are so powerful and, and seemingly running our schools? And has it always been this way? It hasn't always been this way, but it's been this way for a long time. Um, and the story really begins in the the 1970s, um, when state governments were facing a crisis of public employee militancy. So not just even in the education sector, but you had cops and firefighters and teachers and other public workers in state and local government going on strike in record numbers across the country. And state lawmakers at that time decided that the best thing to do to quell this problem was to transplant Uh, collective bargaining, which had been enacted in the private sector in the United States in 1935, obviously under the National Labor Relations Act. And lawmakers across the states, uh, eventually 34 of them by 1990, but most of this happened in the 70s, decided to enact these mandatory public sector collective bargaining laws for teachers. And um, in a nutshell, what that means is that in those states, if a majority of teachers in a given school district petition their school board to bargain collectively over salary benefits and working conditions, then under labor law in that state, they have to do that. And the teachers get to pick a union to represent them. And this may seem very technical and arcane and kind of boring to listeners, but the implications were enormous because, you know, flash forward to two years ago during the pandemic um, and the question of, well, what would school reopenings look like? Literally the reason that teachers unions had to have a seat at the table in those discussions and parents didn't was because of the lineage of these labor laws that required school districts to make them a partner in those decisions. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I have wondered about this for so long. Teachers, uh, it's, I think it's probably a very difficult job. I've only, I haven't taught children, only adults. I'm sure it's an exhausting job, but, and teachers want to be treated like professionals and yet their, their salaries are determined like the trades. Essentially, they have a step and ladder, you are paid the same thing as anyone else who's been there for the same amount of time with the same educational credentials as you, no matter how hard or how little you work. And to me, that kind of uh, takes away the whole professionalism of being a teacher, this uh, collective bargaining salary situation. Yeah. Um, and I, 
you know, I think it's also important to recognize that the labor market for teachers has changed so much between the pre-collective bargaining era of the 1950s and the era of today. Um, and, and so obviously um, the biggest example there is the changing nature of women in the workforce. If you go back and you look at who were our teachers predominantly in the 1950s, it was women who graduated from the very most selective colleges and universities because other opportunities were close to them. Now it's a good thing that that's changed, but one of the consequences is it's harder to recruit into this profession. And so we're relying on an industrial style model um, that doesn't necessarily yield us the crop of applicants we'd want today. But it's a complicated issue. Um, teacher pay um, and, and the problems there are not sort of black and white. You know, it is true, and I am sympathetic to teachers who feel underpaid, a lot of them, um, because teacher salaries have been stagnant since the Great Recession. Sure. Um, on the other hand, um, benefits, um, yeah, pensions, healthcare, uh, post-retirement benefits even, are quite a bit more generous than in the private sector. Um, but one of the things, if you look at, you say, well, education spending has gone up on, uh, even after accounting for inflation. So why have teacher salaries remained stagnant? And part of the answer there, of course, is that we, what we've done in this country is we've invested in teacher quantity and not teacher quality. So the number of adults working in schools has simply gone up and not just teachers, but all of these support staff, uh, custodians, just like bodies in the buildings. Um, and some of that, of course, is driven by special education. Like I said, it's complicated, but some of it isn't. Some of it's driven by simply the demand for um, smaller class sizes, which teachers also like, and a lot of parents like it too. But again, it's complicated because the research is mixed on that. Some studies show that class size is helpful, reductions are helpful, but that tends to be observed at the lowest class size levels. Whereas teachers unions will just routinely come in and say, well, we should lower class sizes across the board everywhere and always. And if you do that, then governments are gonna have less money left over to say, let's raise starting teacher salaries or let's um, do a, a plan where we can pay teachers who are more in demand like yep. STEM teachers or special education teachers more relative to teachers where it's easier to recruit. Yeah, so this is exactly what's happening in Missouri right now, whereby our test scores are as down as anywhere. I mean, they're terrible. 30% uh, of our kids are proficient in math, and uh, we haven't really made up ground. We are losing students, which is, that's a national headwind that I don't really think people realize has happened. Like our, our biggest cohort probably was born in 2007 nationally, and 2007 is when Missouri enrollment topped out in the 900,000s or so. And now we're down in the low 800,000s and we're about, we're projected to be in like 750,000. So we are projected to continue to decline. And yet to deal with the learning loss of the pandemic, what we're mostly hearing about in Missouri is this blue ribbon commission on teaching and they've surveyed teachers and they've come out with their findings, which is they want to pay them more mental health days, improve their benefits, like a laundry list of ways to pay teachers more. And, um, and to get more teachers recruitment and retention. And yet we are, we have declining enrollment. So when I look at the problems we have that are immediate, I'm confused as to why the conversation is so dominated by the idea of we need to support teachers. Um, well, I think it's partly due to the fact that the research tends to show that the quality of a child's classroom teacher 
is the most uh, impactful variable in how much they learn. I mean, setting aside, obviously, the, the biggest factor is sort of socioeconomic status, parental family support. But in terms of what happens in that building, getting the highest quality uh, educators in the classroom we can is an important thing to do. But unfortunately, it sounds like I'm not steeped in, in the commission yeah, sure. that you're talking about, obviously, but it sounds like they're trying what we've tried for too long, which is a kitchen sink approach, throw everything against the wall, you know, survey teachers, find out what they want. But what they're not really thinking about is what is the educator workforce that we want of tomorrow, the one that right. we're the one that we aspire to get. We can't both um, develop policies that focus on uh, the educators we want to recruit and also satisfy every demand uh, and preference of the current educators we have because perhaps some of the current educators we have aren't the ones that we need. Uh, I'm not giving a number on that. I'm not saying it's 50% or 75%. I think most people who go into teaching go into it for the right reasons. Um, but just because you want to serve kids doesn't necessarily mean you are the best person for us to serve kids. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of the reforms that were adopted, for example, in Washington, D.C. under Michelle Reed, I like yep. that story because the union leader that she actually opposed at the time, George Parker, went to work for her afterwards when he was wearing a different hat. And he has now come out uh, in the past year after Mathematica did a very detailed analysis of whether their reforms worked and found that they did and said, yeah, like part of what we did is we changed the deal for teachers. We made it possible for them to earn six figure salaries, but it was going to be based on them demonstrating that they were doing good things for kids, a new way of thinking. And right. there's so much pushback to that in the education space. You know, I think um, to be a little nuanced about it, I think part of it's on us as reformers. Uh, we maybe oversold how much standardized testing could do for us. Testing is important. You need that barometer. I mean, if we didn't have testing, frankly, the, the de-investing in testing concerns me a little bit in the post-pandemic era because a lot of places yeah. don't have the data now to look at sure. the true trends. So testing is important, but we also know that there are other dimensions we want kids to excel on. And we also know that there are a lot of teachers who don't teach math and reading where we have access to you know, value-added right. test scores. So it needs to be multi-layered. But at the same time, it needs to be rigorous. And we can't have a system like we did even after all of those reforms that came about during the Obama years under race to the top, many reforms I will add that were supported by Republicans, ones that I thought were a good idea. Um, but nonetheless, what was the result? 99% of teachers in most states were still evaluated as highly effective. When we looked at the score, students weren't scoring at that level. So we haven't figured out a system yet that is um, nuanced enough to appreciate that teaching isn't black and white, but also rigorous enough to make sure that we're getting the best adults in the classroom. Yeah, and to like the point that you make in your book, I feel like in Missouri anyway, maybe, maybe I'm just taking too negative of a stance, but teachers are such a powerful interest group that when there's a problem, they're like, well, the solution to the problem is to better support teachers. When I really feel like the solution to the problem should include putting tutoring money into the hands of parents and getting kids to, you know, to, to summer school and after school programs and in big time interventions for kids that have lost a year or more of learning, especially the kids in our urban districts that were mostly virtual. And we know that they learned almost nothing. Like most of our kids are below basic in these districts now after the year of virtual disaster. And, you know, instead, a lot of what I hear about is what we need to do then is to better support teachers. And I think it's partly because the folks that are making the policies have the ear of the leadership of the teachers unions, and they're the ones that end up on the blue ribbon commissions and they're on the task force. And so it feels just like a really hard, uh, you know, circle to break into. 
It sounds a lot like an iron triangle. Um, yeah, an iron triangle. You know, I'm not the only one who's sort of used that analogy before, um, you know, or we call it the blob or the education establishment sure. or what have you. And I think that's why um, there has been such interest on the right and among uh, many of these new parent advocacy groups that emerged during the pandemic for school choice, because I think a lot of these actors who would like to kind of um, have their voice uh, heard on equal terms alongside the teachers unions feel as though some of them, I think, have given up on the traditional approach to improving education policy, which would be, you know, uh, the political system, go mm -hmm. to the school board meeting, elect the right people, so on and so forth. And I think a lot of people say, wait, maybe the easiest thing to do is just to build a parallel system, whether that's a sure. network of high quality charter schools in a, in a failing urban district or to provide parents choices um, through a voucher or tax credit system. Um, so I think it's important to step back and think about that. Um, but the reality is, um, unless we've got, you know, a lot of venture capital money suddenly going into building 20,000 new schools in the United States that aren't traditional public schools, that still, even with enrollments being down, most kids are going to be educated in traditional public schools. So I would say to reformers, don't give up on the traditional political levers, but you're, you're identifying exactly the right problem. The voice of parents and other stakeholders were systematically sidelined and disadvantaged relative to what government did, if we use the analogy um, of picking winners and losers, in adopting labor laws uh, and other policies and practices that gave teachers unions a de facto seat at every policymaking table, government picked winners and losers, and the winners were the employees and their unions, and the losers were parents. Um, now, um, there is an interesting possibility here um, that people have begun to talk about. Um, and the most recent example is out of um, Oakland, California, where you have two parents' rights advocacy groups, one that um, has connections to the political rights, kind of a Moms for Liberty type group, and one that actually comes out of um, uh, civil rights activism and more on the left. And they've actually both come together and demanded that the Oakland School Board create transparency for collective bargaining by giving those parent groups an actual seat at the table in these negotiations. For what it's worth, I think that's a good thing. But I will also note that actually a lot of teachers unions across the country, um, this was to my surprise, um, but they support transparency and bargaining. So you, one wonders whether they think maybe um, they might be able to engage in grandstanding in a way that gets the public on their side. See, that school board doesn't really want to give pay teachers a living wage. Um, but at the end of the day, I kind of fall on the more sunlight is better. Um, and yeah. I also think it's just fair. I mean, if you, if you, I've said all along in the pandemic that the biggest problem, and you mentioned tutoring, and that's a great example. We know that um, accelerated tutoring that's well-funded, that's intense, makes difference for making up for learning loss. That's just one example of how if education leaders, if school board members stepped back and said, the only thing I'm going to be guided by in my decision-making and the votes that I cast on the board is what the evidence shows is best for the kids in my district. Tune out all the noise about what adult interests think about those reforms, which times it benefits them, which ones it doesn't. We'd be in a lot better place than we are. And I think the, re the problem is that when you don't have parents 
or other watchdogs at the table when in the case of COVID, it was MOUs that were being written up. Yep. And we saw cases yep. where teachers were told, you don't even have to spend one hour of live instruction online with your students. How does how do those decisions get rendered? Well, they get rendered in secret. They get rendered yep. in an environment where there's no other interest group at the table. And that's what I'm really trying to get at in this book with the notion of the government is the one making these interest groups powerful. Yeah, open collective bargaining. I think that's a, a great place to start. I know during the pandemic, I heard a lot of rumors like, well, the teachers unions negotiated that they couldn't work more than three hours a day or they weren't allowed to contact students in the evening. I don't know if any of these things were true, but a lot of those stories were going around and teachers union leaders did not do the unions any favors. And I'm thinking of one leader in particular, Randy Weingarten, who you know, did not do any favors to her group. I felt like they were way out over their skis uh, many times. And even recently, she's been weighing in on things that I think are way outside of her purview, which is to say she should, I, I shouldn't directly just talk about one person, but I'm just saying the teacher union leadership now believes themselves to be powerful at the national level across all policy areas. And I think that's where they're starting to hurt their own uh, cause. Yeah, I mean, I'll say two things about... Um... Uh, Randy Weingarten's leadership and the AFT. Um, one's a more general point about unions, and then one's another point about um, what we're seeing. I think among the education establishment, um, in, in now that they're sort of waking up and being asked to share power with these new parent groups. So the first point would be that um, you know Randy kind of got to play good cop and relegate the strategy of bad cop to all of her local affiliates across the country. So you heard her go on TV, write op-eds in the Times do favorable news interviews during the pandemic, say, we're trying to open schools. The AFT wants schools to be open. We're giving guidance to um, the federal government about how much money we need in resources. But while she was doing that and saying that she wants schools to reopen, her local leaders in places like Chicago and around the country were fighting for, you know, we need three deep cleanings a day and, you know, a fourth booster shot before we can reopen schools. So that's kind of unfortunately... Um, a product of us having a system where, you know, local control decentralization in theory is great. But when part of that is you have decentralized collective bargaining where you have weak uh, local school board leadership or school board leadership that's put into office um, because of local union activity, it means you've basically got an unfair negotiation going on that advantages the unions. And contrast that, say, um, a lot of people say, well, look at all these other countries that have their act together, whether on test scores or school reopenings. Um, they also have labor unions. So how can the teachers unions be the problem? Well, the unions function so differently in those other countries. In a lot of those countries, one minister of education at the country level sits down with someone like a Randy Weingarten. The media is covering it. It gets a lot of attention. And both of them have to be adults in the room and come up with a deal that's sensible. When you do this at a local level and there's very little news coverage, I think that encourages uh, a lot of extremism, uh, and uh, and we saw the consequences of that. And then just um, briefly on this notion of sharing power and the union going outside of its lane and taking um, positions on all sorts of things. You know, the National Education Association, in the research for my book, I read countless transcripts of their annual meetings back to the 70s and 80s. They've long been taking positions on issues from the Vietnam War to today, LGBTQ issues, right? The sort of idea of going outside their lane. And let's not pick on them too much. A lot of interest groups do that now. Um, but I will say that I find it um, uh, 
odd that a lot of the criticism you're hearing of these new parent rights groups uh, that say, you, you know, you read columns or you read union leaders critiquing them saying, why do they have connections to the Koch brothers or Moms for Liberty or these other right wing groups that oppose uh, organized labor in the United States? And you sort of step back and you say, wait, but the teachers unions give 90 percent of their money to the Democratic Party. And they've been taking positions on issues that have nothing to do with education. So I think they protest a little too much. And I think yeah. the reality is they just don't like the idea of sharing power. Do you see a situation in the near term where the power of teachers unions declines? I don't. Um, and, <laughs> and, and the main reason for that, you know, is that these, um, one of the things that, um, uh, surprised me the most in the book was I was reading um, in the 2010s uh, articles in Education Week and other news outfits that talked about this new rise of parents' rights union. Uh, at the time, they're calling them parents' unions. It's the latest thing. And, and some of the articles were saying, well, we don't have much evidence uh, for whether they'll be successful or not. And funny enough, like I did a lot of archival research. So I went back and I read stories in the Philadelphia Inquirer, a lot of stuff out of Pennsylvania. But there were groups like this in the 1970s that came out for a couple years uh, when something happened that was big, like not COVID, but something that drew parents to get active, maybe a really bad teacher strike in a district or something. And the pattern is, is completely unsurprising to people who study interest groups. There's a lot of enthusiasm. There's a lot of activity when the big event happens. But a couple years later, sure. it tends to fizzle out. That's just human nature. And that's why... Um, my book says the teachers unions are different because the very nature of collective bargaining creates um, a quasi-governmental entity where, um, and this is right out of a Supreme Court decision that was uh, characterizing uh, what public sector collective bargaining did. The Supreme Court said this change in teacher labor law effectively makes teachers unions part of the infrastructure of American school districts. Uh, now that case had to do with the fact um, that unions were fighting over whether they should have access to teacher mailboxes to distribute their literature. And the court was saying, yes, they do have that right. And it can't go to any other groups. It can't go to a parent's rights advocacy group because once labor law certifies that exclusive union, uh, the union becomes part of the operational fabric of the district. And so as COVID recedes eventually, and as we move on to quote unquote more normal times, the one normal will be that the teachers unions will still have this seat at the table and it will take the next crisis for parent groups or education reformers to demand that seat again. And the cycle will probably repeat. Yeah, I I, the bearer of bad news. Yeah, I mean, the only things. thing I could push back a little bit is to say, like, we've got a couple states that have opened up um, school choice to parents in in much bigger ways than it used to be, like Arizona and West Virginia, where now um, and more states moving towards just open enrollment in general, where, you know, if you don't and this, I think, gain some steam during the pandemic, where like if you don't like what the what your uh, home district is doing in terms of vaccines or masks or curriculum or whatever you've learned, then you can go to a, a district next door. And as more states open that up and uh, Arizona's made it private, religious, anything, you can go anywhere with your state money. Um, I think right. that might at least put them on their heels a little bit to say, like, we are going to have to listen to parents at this point. Yeah, I think the challenge for school choice advocates, and I say this all the time, 
Um, unfortunately, I don't have the solution, but it's like, um, you know, I, there was some story out of Maine yesterday, a, a union leader was responding to parent concerns about how gender identity issues were being taught in schools. Sure. And the union leaders quote was something like, well, you know, maybe the school district's not for you. If you don't like it, go buy a home in another district. And my reaction was, um, <laughs> well, if there were a lot of great choices out there, this would be a lot like what the economist Tibu said, you know, vote with your feet. But to me, it sounded a lot more like Mary Ann. Antoinette, let them eat yeah. cake because yeah. there is no option. The problem for school choice advocates is they have to pay attention to the supply issue as okay. much as they pay attention to the issue of enacting laws that give a choice. And that's true for public school choice and private school choice. If you look at a map of Ohio, there was this was going around a couple of years ago that showed the districts that allowed for yeah. inter-district school choice all of the districts around the low income urban areas said, no, we're not participating. Right. And so you get these like islands where kids are stuck in failing districts and they effectively have no choice. Another example of this is if you go back to um, uh, the no child left behind law, remember when schools yeah. failed, one of the sort of penalties that was supposed to make schools work harder was you could leave um, and go to a different school. But we saw very few students took advantage of that because there weren't enough high quality schools for them to go to. So right. we're, lo we're losing too many of our Catholic schools before the pandemic. Um, fortunately, uh, you know, enrollment started, they, they, were, they had a rebound because they were open and the public schools right. weren't. Yeah. So yeah. whatever philanthropists can do, to make sure that we're building enough high quality schools. And this is going to involve political battles, right? Because, you know, um, Robert Pondicio had that great article in Education Next just a few days ago that highlighted um, how in New York, you know, you're running up on that cap on charter schools in New York City. Yeah. So yeah. unless we, you know, um, uh, unless reformers are able to win these battles and invest in supply, then they can pass all the choice laws they want and they're not going to do as much as they could. Yeah. Also, like in terms of declining power and influence, I see that teachers in Massachusetts, I think, are going on strike today, right? Or they're on strike this week. I mean, yeah, teachers are still going on strike. They're still using that approach of if we don't get what we want at the table, we will go on strike. I mean, they were strikes in Ohio this year. Uh, so just when parents are at their unhappiest, they still are going on strike. Let me um put on a slightly different hat here and try to um try to see things from the perspective of a lot of our teachers. Yeah. Um, and and I think there's an opportunity here. I think both for people in my world that do research who've ignored this, but also people in um, um, practitioners and people in policy advocacy, and they're missing something. And that is, it's long been accepted, including by many of my friends in the research community, that teachers support teachers' unions. Um, the unions are the teachers, they represent them. You know, everything is kumbaya. Um, maybe I'm not being fully charitable to that viewpoint, but that's kind of the argument. I think that's probably true when it comes to reformers threatening things like, we're going to get rid of your tenure. You're going to yeah. be evaluated on a single test. Yeah, I think most teachers, Republican, Democrat, independent, doesn't matter, are probably like, eh, not so sure about that. And the union is representing their interests in defending um, from those things. But I think there's a lot of other issues where the views among teachers are more diverse. I think, though, that the teachers unions, I, I think, I could be completely wrong about this, they interact with um, future teachers while they're still in college. 
And they have an opportunity to kind of sell that message early on and, you know, become a student member of the teachers unions. And then we'll just kind of take you in and, uh, and, and they're already halfway down the road before they teach their first day. And then it's a little bit harder. I talked to took a lot about reforming teacher retirement benefits because to say that you're going to teach in the same state, even let alone in, in Missouri, in some cases, we have separate district pension plans, the same district for 25 years just doesn't seem to be reality anymore. And I know that a lot of the people I know who go into teaching right out of college that are so excited about it don't last very long because they realize, you know, it's five years in and they're making $50,000 and they're going to go do something different. So they, their whole pension benefit just goes out the door anyway. So I just think that's a hard message to get across because there's so much on the other side that they hear from their union leadership about how great it is. Uh, all these, all these um, benefits that they put together and protected for them. Yeah. It, it's a massive challenge. And, and, and when you bring up the social security thing, you know, the analogy that immediately comes to my mind is look at the graveyard of politicians who've tried to reform social security, yeah, the third it's rail. like those transition <laughs> costs. It's the same sort of thing. Like in the ideal world, we would recruit an entirely different, uh, we would, we would try to recruit the students graduating from colleges and universities that score in the 99th percentile right. of academic performance. Um, we might be able to actually figure out the pay, um, the pay scheme that does that, the messaging and the classroom environment that does that. But because those transition costs are so big with the current teachers wanting to keep their benefits, it seems like a really difficult thing to pull off, which is why, you know, again, I mean, I wish I could just offer solutions and sort of state the state of affairs of the world, but it's why um, it's not an accident that reformers have won such incremental victories yeah. when the unions got organized and the establishment kind of um, staked out its terrain in the 60s and 70s. And you don't even get a nation at risk calling for a national reform movement until 1983. So it's the timing and sequence of these things that makes it so difficult. I do think, though, that the unions, um, you know, Janus, the big Supreme Court decision, make sure all um, your listeners are familiar with this, but this was the decision in 2018 that finally came out after 40 years in which teachers who didn't want to be a member of the union still had to pay um, some fees to support the union's collective bargaining issue, uh, efforts, the court said no more. So today, any teacher that doesn't want to uh, be a member or pay uh, fees to their union doesn't have to. One of the things that's interesting is we've seen um, modest declines in membership uh, in some states, but no hemorrhaging. So that suggests yep. a couple of things. One, some of the things I just said that teachers want some form of representation. But the other thing I think is it's a generational thing. It's going to take some time because if you've been a teacher paying your dues for 20 years, you're used to seeing your paycheck at level X. But for new teachers that come into the district and are told, oh, you can walk into door one, which is $1,000 more, or you can walk into door two and put that $1,000 in your 401k or whatever. Um, That's a different choice um, situation, but it's going to take time for older teachers to retire and new teachers to come in. So I do think Janice may yet still have a little bit of power um, uh, to, to be seen. Okay. So just finally, like, what do you think of this idea that, uh, or this perception that it's the teachers unions that are protecting democracy that are instilling civic values in our children. And, and that are in many cases, it seems like taking a kind of a over paternalistic approach with children to say that we, actually will do a better job of making you good citizens than your parents. Do you see that holding up for much longer? 
Yeah, you, you know, can see natural, that it even exists, I guess. But right, well, yeah. So the natural next book uh, that I should write, I'm going to be writing one on the pandemic. But the next one should be about democracy and education because that's kind of where right. I end this book on. And the point that I think uh, is important for people to appreciate is that, um, you know, to the extent that in the 1950s teachers were very marginalized from any sort of decision making, and I think there's a lot of evidence that that's true. Collective bargaining and the new regime that came on board was intended to provide a little bit of democratic voice for school employees. Um, uh, and so as a result, the legacy of that is that teachers unions tend to be obsessed with what I call in the book, the procedural side of democracy. So they think the Holy Grail is an elected school board. Uh, only school, the only schools that are public are the ones that are funded by taxpayer dollars, uh, where the elected school board makes all the decisions, you know, that system works pretty well for them. There's also self-interested reasons that they like it. They've done so well in electing friendly school board members. But I, I also say, look, you know, it's true that reformers by their nature, reformers, they like creative destruction. They think that um, tearing down these democratic institutions, if they're not working, makes a lot of sense. And so there's a natural friction there. Yep. But what teachers unions don't often get is that there's the, the democracy is multi-layered. It's not just about participation and procedure. It's about our public policies here, our public schools responsive to the people they're supposed to serve? Are the policies they use representative of the ones that the public wants? And there's a litany of evidence that not just parents, but voters and taxpayers want to see bold educational reform experimentation so that when the unions stand in the doorway and say no, how is that democratic? When parents say we don't want our elementary students learning about gender identity and anything to do with sex education before the fifth grade, um, for anyone to stand up and say, well, you know, you got to let the experts be experts, <laughs> that doesn't sound democratic to me. So I think that that's why you're seeing pushback here. And, and I think that um, teachers unions have not necessarily lived up to uh, the democratic ideals on all fronts of democracy. They're great at the procedural stuff, yeah. not so great at the responsiveness stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. And just for the record, like we have talked before about school board elections and, you know, how democratic or non-democratic those things actually are. So um, I think that that's, you know, we're seeing a push towards moving those to more on cycle, fortunately making those a little bit more democratic, but such a fascinating topic. I am always so careful to say I'm not anti-teacher because I am not. And my kids all went to public schools and I went to public schools and lots of my friends are teachers. I'm not anti-teacher, but I get a little bit riled up by some of the stuff that I see that their leadership is doing. And I don't think it's helpful. So I just yeah. appreciate you putting in a context for us. Yeah. And let me um, also say, let's all do our part uh, as parents to make sure we're teaching our kids the right values. So that our, our, when they go into the teachers, they're, they're providing minimal headaches, right? It, right. You know, this really is a takes a village sort of thing. And, and uh, we need our teachers. Um, yeah. We need them to be excited to go to work and we need the best and the brightest. Um, and, and maybe let me close also for people who are interested in these themes uh, in a week um, or so, the Manhattan Institute's going to release a new report that I have coming out on um, school board elections and the role that unions play in them. Uh, and that report actually ends on a, on a sunny note. So for folks looking for um, uh, perhaps some, um, uh, some ideas about uh, how policy advocates um, can start to provide a little bit more of a counterbalance to, 
to union power in school board elections. The report highlights a lot of the work that Governor DeSantis has been doing in Florida on that. That's awesome. Thank you so much. I can't wait to, to see it and to read it. Great. All right, Michael, thank you so much for joining us again today. All right, thanks I for appreciate having it. me.